this is episode 14 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Now let's start this episode with a look at hate crimes in the news. Uh, since our last episode, the FBI has released the latest hate crime statistics for 2018. Law enforcement agencies reported 7,120 criminal incidents and 8,496 related offenses as being motivated by bias towards race, ethnicity, ancestry, religion, sexual orientation, disability, gender, and gender identity. Most of the hate crimes, about 60%, were motivated by race, ethnicity, or ancestry bias. The other motivations included religion at 19%, sexual orientation at 17%, gender identity at 2%, disability at 2%, and gender at 1%. These statistics indicate a slight drop in reported hate crimes from 7,175 to 7,120 in 2018. Hate crime murders reached a 27-year high in 2018 with a total of 24, which includes the worshippers murdered in the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, which we covered in Episode 8. Attacks against Latinos and the LBGT community increased significantly in 2018, with 485 crimes determined to be anti-Latino, 58 more than in 2017. Since 2016, the number of crimes targeting Latinos has soared by 41%. The number of reported incidents targeting the LGBTQ community increased from 1,217 to 1,347, jumping from roughly 17% to 19% of each year's total number of reported hate crime incidents. The FBI reported 142 hate crimes against transgender people in 2018, an increase of 34% from the year before. As always, people should take these numbers with a massive grain of salt because of underreporting. Of the 16,039 law enforcement agencies the FBI relies on to report hate crimes to its national database, only 2,026, a little more than 12%, actually did so. About 88% failed to report any hate crimes whatsoever, not because of an absence of hate crimes, but because of an absence of reporting. Those 14,013 agencies police more than 100 million people across 49 states 
and collectively claimed not a single hate crime occurred in any of their jurisdictions. That doesn't mean they don't have any hate crimes to report. It means they haven't dedicated the time, training, effort, and resources required. Lack of reporting combines with underreporting, as many victims never report a crime in the first place because of reasons that include shame, distrust of law enforcement, fear of exposure, or fear of deportation. A Milwaukee man faces hate crime charges following accusations that he threw acid in the face of a Peruvian immigrant. Officials said that 61-year-old Clifton Blackwell threw acid at 42-year-old Mahud Villalaz in an early November incident. Villalaz, a U.S. citizen originally from Peru, said a man asked him, Why did you invade my country? before throwing a metal container full of acid at him. Authorities have charged Blackwell with first-degree recklessness, injury, which carries a minimum, excuse me, a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison. Additional hate crime and use of deadly weapons charges could add five years to the sentence. Blackwell will undergo a psychiatric evaluation to determine whether he can assist in his criminal defense. His lawyers asked for an assessment during a Friday meeting in Milwaukee. Blackwell's next court date is November 25th. A man who assaulted a 16-year-old Syrian refugee and used a racial epithet aboard a San Diego trolley, pleaded guilty to an assault charge and hate crime allegation on Monday, November 4th. Adrian Vergara, 26, is expected to be sentenced to five years in state prison next month for the October 15th attack. The victim was traveling home from school and talking to a friend on the phone in Arabic when Vagara pulled an earbud from the victim's ear and asked, What trash are you speaking? When the victim said he was speaking Arabic, Vergara began shouting anti-Arab and Islamophobic slurs and attacked the victim, striking him five or six times. A man accused of shooting and killing his 14-year-old son for being gay appeared in a Nevada court on Wednesday, November 6th. 53-year-old Wendell Melton faces charges of open murder, felony possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, and first-degree felony child abuse. Melton claims he shot his son, Giovanni, by accident on November 2nd, 2017. However, Giovanni's mother, Veronica Melton, says her former husband was, quote, always trying to find out if my son was gay. She added that Giovanni came out to her a couple of months before his death. Of her former husband, she said, he couldn't deal with it because when I was married to him, he would make very disparaging marks against people that were gay. And to me, I know that he was homophobic.
Three men in Washington, D.C. were beaten in what they claim was a homophobic attack. According to the police report, the victims were attacked around 10 p.m. on Halloween as they were leaving the number 9 bar in D.C. A man named Timothy Luke identified himself on Facebook as one of the victims. Luke said that he and his husband, Andy Jackson, and their friend, Jeremy Austin, were the victims of the attack. He said that all three victims had to go to the ER for treatment after the attack, but that Jackson's injuries were the most severe. Jackson suffered a concussion and needed seven staples to close a wound on his scalp. Boston police are investigating an attack that took place outside a popular gay bar at 12.15 a.m. on November 2nd. Three men said a group of people assaulted them verbally and physically as they left Jacques Cabaret, a popular Boston gay bar. A statement from the men said that, quote, the group was shouting homophobic slurs while they punched and kicked one of the victims on the ground before putting him in a chokehold. The suspects ran off before police officers arrived. The victims do not want to be identified, but plan on filing hate crime charges. Eight members of the League of the South, a white supremacist group based in Alabama, were caught attempting to film a propaganda video in front of an Emmett Till Memorial in Sumner, Mississippi. Patrick Weems, executive director of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission, said that the group was captured on camera by a new surveillance system that was updated when the bulletproof memorial was dedicated on October 19th. In a video uploaded to Facebook, Michael Hill, the leader of the group, says, We are here at the Emmett Till Monument that represents the civil rights movement for blacks. And he announced, What we want to know is, where are all of the white people? The group can be seen scrambling for their vehicles after a siren, an additional security measure, sounded. The memorial, which stands on the shore of the Tallahatchie River, near where Till's body was discovered, has been subjected to vandalism and replaced several times. Earlier signs were peppered with bullet holes, but the new sign weighs 500 pounds and has a bulletproof front. Other historical markers for racial violence have been similarly vandalized. The marker depicting the 1923 Rosewood Massacre in Florida has been repaired multiple times. The marker for the 1964 murders of Mississippi Freedom Summer workers James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner was vandalized several times and eventually stolen. Till was kidnapped and killed in 1955 after a white woman accused him of catcalling and grabbing her. The two white men accused of killing him were acquitted of murder by an all-white jury after an hour of deliberation. The woman who first accused Till, Caroline Bryant, admitted decades later that her initial claims were lies.
let's get into the feature story for this episode. As I record this, Democrats in the House of Representatives have launched public impeachment hearings against President Donald Trump following an inquiry into whistleblower testimony that Trump asked the president of the Ukraine to investigate the family of a political opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, and withheld military aid to Ukraine for additional pressure. Trump's reaction has been characteristically over the top with the victimhood dial turned up to 11. He raised a significant number of eyebrows in his tweet on October 22nd. He wrote, So someday if a Democrat becomes president and the Republicans win the House, even by a tiny margin, they can impeach the president without due process or fairness or any legal rights. All Republicans must remember what we are witnessing here, a lynching, but we will win. Now, the president's claim of being impeached without due process doesn't hold water. Not only are the House Democrats following the rules for impeachment, but the Democrats are following the rules that Republicans wrote and passed when they were in the majority. But equating his impeachment with lynching was beyond the pale for pretty much everyone except South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who called the House investigation, quote, a lynching in every sense. We actually took a look at lynching in the previous episode about the 1983 murder of Timothy Coggins, an African-American young man murdered in Georgia for the crime of socializing with a white woman. Lynching, by definition, is when a mob puts someone to death extra-legally, without due process or legal sanction, for the sake of tradition or whatever their twisted idea of justice happens to be. The most popular methods of execution were hanging or burning at the stake. At least 4,742 people were reported lynched in the United States between 1882 and 1968. The Tuskegee Institute records the lynchings of 3,436 black Americans between 1882 and 1950. The Equal Justice Initiative relied on the Tuskegee numbers to build its own count. It included newspaper archives and other historical records to arrive at a total of 4,084 racial terror lynchings in 12 southern states between 1877 and 1950, and 300 in other states. According to the Equal Justice Institute, of all the lynchings after 1900, only 1% resulted in a lynching participant being convicted of a criminal offense of any kind. If Trump or Graham cared to know more, they could travel to Montgomery, Alabama, where the Equal Justice Initiative opened the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in 2018. Their website describes it as the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved black people, people terrorized by lynching, African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, 
and people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. It includes 800 monuments representing U.S. counties where lynchings took place, listing the names of people lynched in each county. Graham could visit the monument representing his state, where 187 African Americans were lynched between 1870 and 1950. He was present on December 20, 2018, when the Senate unanimously passed a bill to make lynching a federal crime over a century after efforts to pass such a law began. More than 200 anti-lynching bills have been introduced in Congress since 1918, all of which were voted down. The first was introduced in 1918 and passed the House, but was opposed and blocked by Southern senators. In 2005, the Senate passed a resolution apologizing for repeated failures to pass anti-lynching legislation. Frequently, both methods were employed to slake the mob's bloodlust but usually not before an orgy of torture that could include flogging, mutilation, castration, disembowelment, burning or tarring and feathering. Many lynchings were public spectacles that took place before hundreds and even thousands of people, including whole families who often traveled by car, train, or wagon to watch the lynching carried out. In a few cases, southern newspapers even announced or advertised lynchings in advance, allowing plenty of time for people to gather for the festivities. Some, including children, often rushed to grab souvenirs like bullets or the fingers, toes, bones, teeth, and even castrated genitals of the executed. Those who failed to grab such morbid memorabilia would have the opportunity to buy picture postcards of the smoldering remains of the lynched hanging from a tree, a utility pole, or a bridge as members of the mob posed with pride next to their work. If this sounds light years removed from an impeachment investigation proceeding along its constitutionally mandated course, it should. It doesn't resemble a lynching any more than Trump resembles the victims to whom he compared himself. To find details on what was done to some of the lynching victims whose memories Trump dishonored, I used several resources. The most helpful included Philip Dre's book, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America, James Allen's Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America, and the Equal Justice Initiative's report, Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror. And of course, Wikipedia was also a big help. Anthony Crawford was killed by a lynch mob in Abbeville, South Carolina, in 1916, primarily for being too wealthy for a black man. He was known not to tolerate disrespect from anyone in any form. After his death, the Charleston newspaper described him as rich for a Negro, and he was insolent along with it. 
Born in 1865 during Reconstruction, Crawford was an ambitious and literate child. He routinely walked seven miles to school in Abbeville. Upon his father's death, he inherited a modest acreage of cotton fields. He made significant land purchases in 1883, 1888, 1899, and 1903. By 1916, his holdings had grown to 427 acres, In today's dollars, that would be just over $590,000. In the mid to late 1890s, Crawford co-founded the Industrial Union of Abbeville County, which was devoted to, quote, the material, moral, and intellectual advance of the colored people. He was father to 16 children, 12 sons, and four daughters, many of whom settled on plots adjoining his own. On October 21, 1916, Crawford took two loads of cotton and a load of seed to Abbeville, and he had a disagreement with white store owner W.D. Barksdale about the price. At the time, cotton was selling for 90 cents a bushel, but Barksdale only offered 85 cents. Crawford told Barksdale he had already received a better offer. Before he could gather his seed and leave, Barksdale called him a liar. Crawford cursed Barksdale and accused him of trying to cheat him. The simple act of cursing a white man would have been all the justification whites in Abbeville needed to lynch Crawford, but the conflict escalated as the two men took their argument out into the street. One of Barksdale's employees followed Crawford out of the store and hit him in the head with an axe handle. Crawford called for help, which got the attention of Sheriff R.M. Burtz, who arrested Crawford, probably for his own protection, as an angry white mob was already starting to gather. Before Burtz could get Crawford to jail, word had spread that a Negro had cursed a white man in the town square. After a brief period in jail, Crawford was released on $15 bail later that day. Police allowed him to leave the jail through a side door, but the mob caught sight of him and chased him into a nearby cotton mill where he took shelter in the boiler room. A mill employee named McKinney entered the boiling room and Crawford grabbed a hammer and knocked him unconscious. The mob beat and stabbed Crawford despite mill employees' efforts to stop it. Sheriff Burtz appeared again and arrested Crawford again for his own protection. Physician C.C. Gamble, who also happened to be the mayor of Abbeville, treated Crawford and announced that Crawford would soon die of his wounds. That would not be enough to satisfy the angry white mob. Around 3 o'clock that afternoon, a crowd of 200 white men captured and disarmed Sheriff Burtz and abducted Crawford from the jail. The mob kicked, beat, and tied him to the back of a stolen lumber wagon and dragged him through the black neighborhood in town before finally taking him 
to a fairground and hanging him from a tree. Armed whites used his body for target practice, firing as many as 200 rounds into his body. County Coroner F.W.R. Nance took a jury to the fairground after dark and cut down what remained of Crawford's body. The coroner found that Crawford had died at the hands of persons unknown. The newspaper's headline the next day read, Negroes strung up and shot to pieces. Governor Richard Irvine Manning quickly denounced the murder and ordered Sheriff Burtz and State Solicitor Robert Archer to investigate and hand down indictments of mob participants. Though many were questioned, no Abbeville resident would testify against any member of the mob, and it was impossible to select an impartial jury in the city. Manning called for the trial's venue to be moved to another county, but nothing ever came of it. The local newspaper, the Abbeville Scimitar, actually published a statement purportedly written by members of the lynch mob. The statement read, We are all responsible for the conditions that caused Crawford's death. Those involved might have gone too far, but they are white men, and Crawford was black. The black must submit to the white, or the white will destroy. There were several hundred who participated in this lynching, and nearly all the others were well-wishers. Therefore, to pick out a few to satisfy a newly imported mawkish sentiment is pitiful and cowardly. Men of Abbeville, the eyes of all white men are upon you. Acquit yourselves as white men. The conditions made by us all makes us all responsible. So let's not ask only eight to shoulder the whole burden. Answer a mawkish sentiment generated by hypocrisy and craven fear with the ringing verdict, not guilty. White citizens, likely including several mob participants, voted in a civic meeting at the Abbeville Courthouse on October 23rd to expel what remained of Crawford's family from South Carolina and seize their considerable land holdings. They also voted to shut down all the black-owned businesses in Abbeville. A group of white businessmen worried about the economic impact of this decision met with the Crawford family after the meeting at the courthouse and detailed the situation to them. The Crawfords agreed to leave the state by mid-November. Though Anthony Crawford's murder took place in broad daylight over several hours and was witnessed by hundreds, not one mob participant was ever charged, let alone prosecuted. A lynch mob in Georgia murdered Mary Turner in 1918 for speaking out and demanding justice after her husband's murder. It started in mid-May 1918 when a 31-year-old white plantation owner in Brooks County named Hampton Smith 
was shot and killed by his black worker, Sidney Johnson. Smith was known to beat and abuse his workers, and as a result, few people in the area would work for him. Smith dealt with his labor shortage by turning to the debt peonage system. Often called slavery by another name, the system allowed an employer to compel a worker to pay off a debt with work. Black men in the South often became trapped in the system after being arrested for black code violations, such as vagrancy. Congress outlawed the practice in 1867, but it wasn't completely eradicated in the South until the 1940s. Smith bailed people out who were jailed for petty offenses and had them work off their bail money on his plantation. Sidney Johnson became one of Smith's workers after he was arrested for rolling dice and fined $30, over 500 in today's dollars. The two men agreed on a set time for Johnson to work off his debt. After completing those days, Johnson stayed on to help with the expectation of being paid. When the time came to pay Johnson, Smith refused but still expected Johnson to work. A few days later, when Johnson failed to show up for work due to an illness, Smith beat him for being sick. Angered by this treatment, Johnson shot Hampton Smith through a front window of his home. Smith died immediately, and the bloodshed had only just begun. A mob-driven manhunt ensued for Johnson and others believed to be involved in his decision to shoot Smith. Johnson was killed in a shootout with police in Valdosta, Georgia. A crowd of more than 700 people seized Johnson's remains. The mob cut off his genitals and tossed them into the street. They tied a rope around his neck and dragged him nearly 20 miles to Campground Church in Morven, Georgia, where his remains were buried. The mob violence lasted for 13 days and resulted in the deaths of at least 13 people. One of those killed was Hayes Turner, the husband of 21-year-old Mary Turner, who was eight months pregnant. The violence caused more than 500 blacks to flee the area, though whites threatened some black workers who tried to leave. On Sunday, May 19, 1918, Mary Turner publicly objected to her husband's murder. She went so far as to threaten to swear out warrants against those responsible for his murder. For this, she would pay dearly. Turner's, quote, unwise words enraged local whites, and she fled for her life and that of her unborn child. But the mob caught her and took her to a place called Folsom's Bridge, on the border of Brooks and Lowndes counties. The mob tied Mary by her ankles and hung her upside down from a tree, doused her with gasoline, and burned her clothes off. Then a member of the mob cut Mary's stomach open, and her unborn child 
fell to the ground, where it gave two feeble cries, and then was stomped and crushed to death by a member of the mob. Mary's child died without a name. History does not even record its gender. The mob then riddled Mary's body with gunshots. Later that night, Mary and her baby were buried about ten feet from the site of their murder in a makeshift grave marked with only a whiskey bottle with a cigar stuck in its neck. Walter White, leader of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People for nearly 25 years, included a chilling account of Mary Turner's murder in his 1929 book, Rope and Faggot, a biography of Judge Lynch. Mocking, ribald laughter from her tormentors answered the helpless woman's screams of pain and terror. Mr. You ought have heard the N-word wench howl, a member of the mob boasted to me a few days later. The clothes, having burned from her crisply toasted body, in which unfortunately life still lingered, a man stepped towards the woman and, with his knife, ripped open the abdomen in a crude cesarean operation. Out tumbled the prematurely born child. Two feeble cries it gave, and received for answer the heel of a stalwart man as life was ground out of the tiny form. In 2008, the Mary Turner Project was formed to educate students about the May 1918 lynchings and racial injustice. In 2010, a memorial to Turner and the other lynching victims was placed near the lynching site in Lowndes County. Within a year, someone had shot a bullet hole through the middle. Since then, the marker has been shot at least three times. In 1931, a lynch mob in Salisbury County, Maryland, killed Matthew Williams for a murder he likely did not commit. On Friday, December 3rd, Williams went to the office of his employer, local lumberyard and box factory owner Daniel J. Elliott, to discuss his hourly wage. Williams had worked for Elliott since childhood and was well-liked by and extremely loyal to the Elliott family. Elliott was in his office talking on the phone with businessman Thomas Chatham when Williams entered his office around 2 p.m. Chatham said that no words were spoken, and he heard two gunshots fired. He then called authorities. Elliot was found dead at his desk by his son James and the police. James Elliot said he heard the shots from his home, ran to investigate, and found his father dead and Williams lying on the floor in a pool of blood. The Philadelphia Record, in an article published on December 5th, said that Williams attempted suicide after shooting his employer, but failed and was thus found on the scene by James Elliot. Though he had suffered several gunshots, 
Williams recovered and fled to the lumberyard. The Philadelphia Record reports that James Elliott took his father to the hospital and returned to find Williams staggering through the lumberyard. That's when James Elliott shot Williams in the head. However, Shepard Kretsch's book, Praise the Bridge That Carries You Over, The Life of Joseph L. Sutton, offers a very different account. In the biography, Mr. Sutton recalls a conversation with a friend who said it was Daniel Elliott's son, James, who did the shooting. And this is a quote from the biography. I heard a white man from down there was telling it. He said he didn't shoot that man, didn't nobody shoot him but his son, and put it on this colored fellow. And the colored fellow's been working for this man. The man had some kind of lumberyard, I think. Well, he say, he'd been working for him ever since he was a boy. We know he didn't shoot him, and they always gave him everything he wanted. And the son was spoiled, and he was the one that killed his father. And after they had lynched this fellow, well, they said the majority of them down there spoke of it. They said the same thing. Said, wasn't nobody but his son. He killed his father and then shot this colored fellow so he wouldn't be there against him. Then this colored fellow, he said, had killed his father and he took the gun away from him and shoot him. Williams was a serious young man, especially when it came to money. He had reportedly saved about $56 at the time of his death. In today's dollars, that would be almost 950 That was a considerable amount for a black laborer in 1931. After his death, no trace of the money was ever found. It seems that Williams had agreed to loan some of the money he had saved to James Elliott on the condition that James would pay him back. When his attempts to get James Elliott to repay the debt failed, William took the matter up with his father, Daniel J. Elliott. That's when James entered the office and shot both his father and Williams. After he was shot by James Elliott in the lumberyard, Williams was taken to Peninsula General Hospital in downtown Salisbury. Having arrived reportedly half-dead and unconscious, hospital staff put Williams in a straitjacket to prevent further attacks. State's Attorney Levin C. Bailey and Wacomico County Sheriff G. Murray Phillips somehow questioned Williams in this state, and Phillips was quoted as saying, I got my man. The Salisbury Times initially reported in its late edition that Williams had died of his wounds. However, as soon as the newspaper learned he was alive by 7.30 p.m., a sign was posted outside correcting the previous report. A crowd gathered on the hospital lawn as people exited their homes, shops, restaurants, and workplaces. A group of men entered the hospital and demanded that Williams be handed over to them. But Police Chief N.H. Holland and Deputy John Parks blocked the entrance and stopped them. A group of about six members of the mob went 
around the building and accessed the hospital's Negro wing via an open side entrance. There, hospital supervisor Helen V. Wise told them, If you must take him, do it quietly. The men grabbed Williams, still straight-jacketed, and his eyes covered by a bandage wrapped around his head, and threw him out of the first-floor window to a crowd of three hundred waiting below. The crowd swelled to over one thousand, about ten percent of the town's population. Members of the mob stabbed Williams with an ice pick and dragged him behind a truck three blocks to the courthouse lawn. Sheriff Phillips tried to stop the lynching, but the mob pushed him aside. At about 8 p.m., the crowd tied a rope around the unconscious William's neck and strung the other end over a tree branch about 20 feet from the ground and repeatedly lifted him up and dropped him to the ground. After William's body hung lifeless and mocked by the mob for about 20 minutes, members of the crowd started taking parts of his body as souvenirs. The crowd followed as William's body was dragged, again by truck, towards the black section of town off Salisbury's Poplar Hill Avenue. The Baltimore African-American reported, First they dragged him to the courthouse square and hanged him, then they cut him down, tied the rope to the back of an auto, and dragged him to the Negro section of town. Then they got about 40 or 50 gallons of gasoline, but before they threw this gas over him, they cut off his fingers and toes and threw them on the porches and in the yards of the colored people's homes, shouting remarks that they, the colored people, could make N-word sandwiches out of them. They then threw the gas over him, set a match to him, and while the human torch burned, they passed booze around, drinking and shouting. The sheriff was able to recover William's body and cut it down from a light post hours later. Unsure what to do with the remains, officials dumped the body in a field outside of town. William's family, though terrified by the violence and atrocities inflicted on their son, still wished to recover his body for a proper burial. Black undertaker James Stewart and local authorities brought the body back from the field for a funeral held at Stewart's funeral home. In the days following William's murder, the body of a black man was found so severely mutilated that he could not be identified. Rumors spread that the same bloodthirsty mob that killed Williams murdered the unidentified man. A piece of bacon and half a ham sandwich wrapped in brown paper were found near the body. It was believed that the man went to a store Saturday night after officials warned blacks to stay off the street and was attacked by a group of whites who wounded him and carried him to the spot where he was found. No witnesses to the crime could be found. Though officials interviewed hospital workers who were present during William's abduction, none of them could remember or recognize anyone who was a part of the mob that night. Incredibly, officials concluded that most of the members of the mob were from other parts of the peninsula, including Delaware and Virginia. 
To this day, no one has been prosecuted for the lynching of Matthew Williams. A memorial for Williams was held at the courthouse in Salisbury on December 4, 2018, 87 years after the lynching. Just days before the ceremony, Ku Klux Klan flyers were distributed at homes in Princess Anne as well as Seaford and Dover, Delaware. The differences between lynching and impeachment couldn't be more apparent. Donald Trump isn't being denied due process. If anything, he's receiving a surfeit of due process. He isn't being publicly humiliated, except perhaps by himself and his own supporters. He's not being publicly mutilated. He's not being tortured. Though for someone so used to not being held accountable for his actions, it probably feels that way to him. Gilliam Brockwell explained it pretty well in the Washington Post. She wrote, So for comparison, impeachment is not a lawless mob committing murder, but a group of democratically elected officials following a process laid out in the U.S. Constitution for the potential removal of a president. A president is simply removed from office, not from this earth. The Hate Crime Files is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks, as always, for your support. I'll be back with another episode around the first of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.